This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I said, shoot the 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked through that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. If you're out there and live a past period, you can hear it just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during the next execution, it had an impression on them that maybe it was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until we get back to stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get back to them. That was one of, the, one of the problems we ran into. You had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking and joking and drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd have to plan in there to... to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome to the Behind Gray Walls podcast, and happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween! Happy spooky Halloween! <laughs> well, it sounds like we have some good ghost stories to be sharing with you today, but before I get started, do you have any Halloween traditions you're doing this year? You That's know, a good one. That's a good question. Honestly, yeah. usually I just sit at our house and dress up spooky with my wife. We watch a scary-ish movie. She's not a big scary movie fan, so... <laughs> and then we wait for our maybe three trick-or-treaters that come to the door and give them handfuls of candy. <laughs> Anthony, what's been your favorite costume that has come to your door? That is a great question. I feel like I had a little knight, like a little this little tiny boy who had, you know, shining armor and this helmet on and a sword. And it was just, it was very well done. If it was homemade, it was very impressive. Cute. Yeah. <laughs> I love to see how, like, all the little kid costumes, they're so cute. Yeah, me too. What about you, Skye? I mean, honestly, it's just a bunch of graduate students who are um, (laughs) in the middle of the semester, so I have a feeling we're going to buy a bunch of Halloween candy and watch something not really scary, because I don't really like scary movies, maybe Hocus Pocus or something. Yeah. But I do miss dressing up. My last costume was my Cher costume, which was her turn-back time outfit. Can definitely post it on the Instagram. So I would dress as my favorite chair, turn back time outfit. I sewed it, and actually I didn't sew it because I don't know how to sew, my roommate sewed it. And it was basically just a leotard with just like sheer tights. And the day that I wore it, I was going to school in Wyoming and it was 22 degrees. Oh (laughs) my gosh. Uh, So anyway, I miss dressing up and uh, getting cold going trick-or-treating. What about you, Sam? You know, I have a lot of, lot of Halloween traditions. Halloween's a very important time of year for me, as you might imagine. One of my favorite, most simple traditions is just doing like kind of rich caramely apple crisp and then if I'm feeling ambitious I'll like carve out pumpkin pie pumpkins and cook dinner in them and they're yeah. really good yeah just so wow. listeners know like Sam is not only a fantastic researcher and storyteller but the baked goods that I've had that he's made are incredible awesome cook well I didn't know that so Sam next time <laughs> I'm in town I expect a baked good but should we uh, do some spooky stuff let's do it One of the oldest traditions in Idaho is the sharing of ghost stories. This might come as a surprise to you all, but I personally have a really special place in my heart for the ghost stories shared during the days of the Idaho Territory. Idaho, of course, was inhabited by indigenous people for tens of thousands of years, but after the discovery of gold in 1860, a stampede of immigrants came into the area. Idaho separated from Washington and officially became a territory in 1863. 27 years later, in 1890, Idaho officially became the 43rd state in the Union. During those first 27 years, miners, cowboys, and homesteaders gathered together around campfires to share with each other chilling stories of phantoms from the beyond. Some of these stories are pretty laughable by today's standards, but there are a few things to consider. During the days of the Idaho Territory, when the sun set, things became very dark. In an era in an area without electricity, internet, and cell phones, when the sun disappeared, all you had to protect yourself from the shadows was the flickering of a flame. Despite the boom towns, much of the vast Idaho wilderness had small populations. You could not phone for help if you got in trouble. Some people were so spread out their neighbors could not even hear them scream. Back in an era when missing community members might never be found, when the discovery of human remains 
frequently failed to be identified, or in violent murders often went unsolved. The ghost stories told at night surely held different weight than they do today. I want to invite you to join us for a few terrifying tales. Please, sit down, turn the lights down real low. I'll start a fire, and together we can do as they did in days of old. You can listen to the song of the Fiddler's Ghost, learn of the frustrating mystery of the Headless Cowboy, and hear the story of Aaron Morris's revenge. Gaze into the fire's flickering light, breathe in the autumn night air, and together we will step back into the darkest pages of Idaho history to tell stories of the ghosts of the territory. Can you hear that? Faintly off in the trees, a bow pulled gently across strings. Let's start tonight with the haunting song of the Fiddler's Ghost. Idaho has a long and rich history of incredible musicians, Anthony of course being one of them, <laughs> but especially back in the days before television and radio, before even traveling circuses or plays moved through Idaho mining camps, the first entertainment was music. These musicians were pillars of these small communities, such as the legendary Fiddle Kelly, who's claimed to have faced down the monstrous guy Scuttis from last year's Halloween special. However, one of Idaho's oldest musical numbers still plays in Lasserville. If you believe the campfire stories, you can go up there to the woods for a personal private performance. Three dead fiddlers wait there drawing bows across ghostly strings, filling the forest with the songs of the dead. The legend of the three fiddlers is one of Idaho's oldest ghost stories. And while it's been told and retold for over 160 years, much of the original story has been lost in its retelling. Behind this ghost story is is real history, a shocking murder, and a violent mystery. It all began in the city of Placerville in 1865 when Owen McCuller fell out of a tree. Citizens rushed to the Irish immigrant side. They tried to provide first aid, but their efforts were too little, too late and soon Owen died. Perhaps because of this unexpected tragedy, the first reports of another death were assumed to be repeat news about Owen. But that turned out to not be the case at all. A man entering town reported, There was a pile of dead men lying in a road a short distance off. The community quickly mobilized, and on the roads between Placerville and Centerville, they discovered three bodies. Fred Carzoni's body lay face down, shot through the back. George Wilson's body sat some distance away, stuffed into a prospecting hole filled with water. L. Moulton lay face down, shot through the back as well, but unlike the others, he still breathed. They rushed to the one living victim, but Moulton never spoke again and soon died. With broken strings and shot full of bullets, Moulton's banjo and Fred's fiddle lay by their sides. The death of the three men outraged the city and a mob soon formed eager for someone to blame. Despite a century of legends about the three fiddlers, only one of the men killed on June 4th, 1865 played the fiddle. In fact, George Wilson did not play an instrument at all. George Wilson, born in 1832 in Ireland, fought in the California Calvary before coming to Idaho as a prospector. A proud member of the Oddfellow Society, he lived in the area for less than four months before his death. Fred Carzoni immigrated from London. A talented fiddler, he performed in saloons throughout Portland and later Idaho before sending his earnings home to his wife and child in England. L. Moulton, born in New York in 1828, discovered out west he could make more money in a band than in a mine. In more polite terms than used by the newspapers, they described him as performing in minstrel shows and bands of black performers. Moulton may have been black or simply played in all black bands. Moulton, a talented banjo player, described as respected by all, married his wife in the summer of 1864. When authorities informed his wife of her husband's death, she fainted. Despite freighters being nearby at the time of the murders, no one witnessed what occurred. The community assumed that George, who left Placerville that morning, carried with him a sizable amount of gold. The killer, or killers, followed him out of town, robbed and killed him. 
While attempting to dispose of the body, Moulton and Fred, their instruments in hand, pass by on foot. After they attempted to flee, the killer shot them both in the back multiple times with a rifle. The Placerville population of 2,500 might not have been as large as it had been two summers before when it claimed 5,000 citizens, but this boom town still came equipped with 13 saloons, 7 restaurants, 5 butcher shops, 5 blacksmith shops, hotel, druggists, Wells Fargo agents, bakeries, liveries, barns, carpenters, sawmill, and even a dressmaker. 1,200 men began a massive manhunt throughout the woods. Despite no evidence, the town began making arrests. Deputy Sheriff Maloney arrested Charles Kimball, Ned Elwood, and William and placed them under arrest. Recently, the authorities arrested Williams for horse theft. Kimball and Elwood paid his bond. William, who went under the alias Burke in Welsh as well, quickly became quite the topic of gossip. This talk claimed that William robbed the Scott River stagecoach in California, later escaping from the California penitentiary, hiding out in an even less tame area of the West, the New Territory of Idaho. After Elwood and Kimball were overheard having a suspicious conversation, all three of them were immediately arrested. But this case, with no solid evidence, began to break down in court. A vigilante committee of 25 men formed, and threats of a lynching began to circulate. The Idaho World reported, quote, the evidence against the prisoners we understand was entirely circumstantial, but the feelings against them was intense and dangerous. Judge McBride endured massive criticism when he released the men on light bail during the beginning of July. But by then, the vigilantes' tempers began to cool, and no one attempted to kill the suspected men. The men were eventually acquitted. The bloodiest chapter in Placerville came to a close with no conclusion. No one has ever been convicted of murders. According to local lore, the three murdered men, minor George Wilson, fiddle player Fred Carzoni, and banjo player El Moulton were all buried in a mass grave along with Owen McCuller, who died from the fall. The spot, said to be their final resting place, now grows four massive trees. Strangely enough, the trees form a perfect square, one for each of the victims of that fateful day. On clear, quiet nights, they say, if you listen very carefully, you can still hear them play. That's a great story. <laughs> well, it sounds like if I need somebody to jam with, I'm going to just take my double bass out there. we got fiddle banjo and get a nice little bluegrass jam going. <laughs> I'm sure the spirits would enjoy it for you to come and play with them in the woods. I love that. All right, Skye, well, what do you have for us? Well, I don't have a story that quite has a beginning, a middle, and an end like that. Very spooky and enjoyable one. What I did instead was just scoured some newspapers, found a bunch of different newspaper articles that like feature ghosts or local legends or ghost stories, and all of these I found on newspapers.com from various Idaho newspapers. Just want to start with a little ghost joke that appeared in the Idaho World on July 11th, 1874. And it says, A ghost lately appeared at a Boston lawyer and brandished a huge club over his head. The original of that ghost must have been one of the lawyer's clients. <laughs> classic. Nice. <laughs> now, there is a, a real ghost story I managed to find in the newspapers. It's from Centerville, which is in Boise County and in the heart of the mining country, which is right where we were with Sam's story, and I think we'll be there after this one as well. This is from the Idaho Semi-Weekly World, published on January 7th, 1876, and then they followed it up a few months later. This is a letter from Centerville that the Idaho Semi-Weekly World receives, and it says, to the editor of the world, if a ghost story will interest you or your readers, I I have one of a very thrilling character to relate. The one who saw it was Mr. Jesse Duvault, and the scene of the meeting was a lonely spot on the road between this place and Pioneer, near where the road crosses Wilson's Ditch. The goblin damned appearance in form and features of Mr. John Lee, who, it will be remembered, went down on the ill-fated steamer Pacific. Mr. Duvault states that the ghost came up to him in the road and caught his horse by the rein of the bridle. The horse became frightened and reared and plunged fearfully, but finally quieted down and stood trembling in the grasp of the specter. Mr. D then addressed his ghost ship, thinking he knew who it was. He said, Is that you, Lee? To which the ghost answered, This is my ghost. Jesse, who was known to be a bluff and stoical, asked, Where's your damned old body? In the 
Pacific Ocean and as deep as it will sink without lead, answered the apparition. Jesse says that he then began to get scared, but the ghost assured him that he would not be hurt and that it or he had come all the way up here to get someone to do him a favor. Said he had seen several men pass by there and named several, among whom were Johnny and Carrie Howard, two young men who live here. But he said that they would not stop, though he hailed them afterwards, saying that one of them stopped, but the other rode on, which part of the story has been verified by Johnny H. Who says that while passing that place, they heard a noise and that his brother did stop while he rode on. After a considerable conversation during which the ghost told them not to ask too many questions, it took a firm hold on the reins and led the horse up the road about 200 yards to a tree and said that by that tree there was money there was money buried in a bottle to the amount of $500, which he wished Jesse to dig up on the 15th of May and paid two bills for him, one of $15 and another of $25, the remaining $460 Jesse was to keep. Quote, But don't touch it before the 15th of May, said the ghost. Jesse says it told him many other things which he is not permitted to tell. And when we left, he said, Gentlemen, I have lived for 50 years, and I never believed in ghosts, and I never saw one before. But this I have seen, and felt, and heard, and I can't help believing it. And on the 15th of May, I'm going to dig for that money, and then I will know whether ghosts lie or not. <laughs> he said further that he shook hands with it, and that the hand was as cold as ice, said it had a cane on its arm, just as Lee used to have one, and said it told him to go to the hotel and eat his supper with his overcoat on, which he did, and no argument of any kind can make him believe, but that he saw just what he described. He's told this story a number of times into different parties, but he always tells the same story. Says it told him that it would not make any tracks, but to be satisfied on that point, he went back today to see if there was a track of the spirit to be seen. Tonight, he says that, though he looked carefully, he could not find a track, so that he knows it was no man. We have discussed the thing thoroughly, but cannot solve the mystery. As a matter of course, there's no ghost there, but what's the matter with Jesse is what puzzles us. The solution I offer is this. Pioneer boasts of some pretty girls, and one of our Centerville boys has a hankering for one of them. The Pioneer fellows, not liking this, have paid Jesse to spring this ghost story to scare P.D. so that he will stay home and let the girls alone. That might do for Pioneer, but we'll let them know that Centerville swains are composed of sterner stuff, and all the goblins this side of Archeon can't keep us away from the girls if the girls are willing that we should come. But I must not make light of Jesse's ghosts, for ghosts are ghosts for all that. So then, there is a bit of follow-up published the same day on the next page, and it says, We always doubted the rumor that John Lee of Centerville would down on the Pacific. The ghost story in another column greatly strengthens the doubt. John would not be foolish enough to let a debt of $30 trouble him to the extent of climbing out of the seaweed and coming all the way back here in midwinter to settle it. At least he wouldn't have traveled that distance in the flesh for any such nonsense. John has been stuck after an Oregon widow for years and will wager a small amount that he's somewhere down there sparking her. We do not doubt, however, that Jesse Duvall saw a genuine spook, but it surely could not have been the disembodied spirit of our friend John Lee. Hmm. A couple months later, on September 22nd, again from the Idaho Semi-Weekly World, John Lee, whose ghost cavorted beneath the old pine tree near Placerville last winter, is now walking the quarter deck of an old mud scow on one of the rivers of California. John wasn't dead by considerable, at last accounts, and his spiritual shadow will flit nevermore in the fevered imaginations of the superstitious. Mr. McHenry, while in California, a short time since, saw John Lee, who was alive and well and hard at work. He had a big laugh at the supernatural stories told about him and wanted to bet stamps he never had any money buried up here nor anywhere else. So that is a pretty spooky ghost story that was not a ghost story at the end of the day. Who did he shake hands with? What did he shake right. hands with? Ooh. Yeah. They do say, I don't doubt he saw a ghost, but it wasn't the ghost of John Lee. What's what's that whole concept? Uh, the impersonator, the spirits that take form of things you think you recognize, yeah. think you know, to try and get you to do stuff for them. What? I've never heard of that. Ghosts, demons, or mythical monsters that will mimic people. Yeah. And like pretend <laughs> to be your dead grandma when really there's something else. And they usually want you to do very specific things. <laughs> Wait, you're just talking about scammers that call you on the phone. <laughs> I was going to say, you're just talking about artificial intelligence right now. <laughs> Maybe mimics come in many forms and shapes. Yeah. And sometimes they're phone scammers. Every time I get a phone scam call, I'm just going to yell, you're actually a demon into the phone. <laughs> Please do. Well, if he did make up the ghost story that supports the theory they were trying to use ghosts to spook away the suitors courting the young women in the area. True. <laughs> yeah. True, true. Very good. Nice guy. 
Sky. Similar to what you were saying, Sky, with this story and opposed to the Fiddler story, not all Idaho myths are good examples of cause and effect. As historians, you hope for complete stories, but are often left with sporadic moments that you're not always able to piece together into a coherent narrative, leaving you with more questions than answers, and there are few legends as perplexing as the mystery of the Headless Cowboy. On January 24, 1882, Mr. Cushling left his warm cabin and went out into the icy winds in order to accomplish a rather strange mission. Mr. Cushling, you see, was looking for a ghost. Apparently, a rumor had been circulating about a ghost roaming the forest around the Boise Basin. The phantom had been seen from Placerville to Granite Creek, so Mr. Cushling, a French immigrant and a firm skeptic of the supernatural, offered to meet the spirit face to face. Whether Mr. Cushling hoped to disprove it as a hoax, or some part of him really hoped that there would be a real-life supernatural encounter is somewhat unclear. What we do know is at midnight, Cushling bundled up and stepped out into the frigid darkness and headed to Opier Creek with the intention of encountering the specter. The trek must have been a hard one, with his feet sinking deep into the snow, the cold biting at any exposed skin, and the flickering of his lantern unable to penetrate the never-ending darkness. After arriving at the spot, Cushling waited and waited and finally waited some more. The wind howled. The next day, he stumbled back to his cabin. The Idaho semi-weekly described his state as, quote, disappointed, disgusted, and nearly frozen to death. The ghost had never come. It seems as though the rumors of the phantom in the woods were nothing more than rumors. The snow began to thaw, and those living in the area began to enjoy the longer days. By March, some miners might have been able to get back to work, including Dud Snow over at Grimes Creek. Grimes Creek rests about 15 miles south of where Cushling went looking for the ghost, and about 12 miles north of Idaho City. So still in the same general area of these other stories we've been talking about. Grimes Creek is now a peaceful spot, the burbling water pleasantly making its way through the tall Idaho pines. But 160 years ago, it used to be a bustling mining camp full of activity. In fact, Grimes Creek holds a special place in Idaho history. George Grime and Moses Splon discovered gold there on August 2nd, 1862. This event helped kickstart the Idaho gold rush, an era that Grimes did not live to see. A few days after the discovery, the pair were attacked. During the gun battle that ensued, Grimes became fatally wounded. Splon dug a shallow grave where he buried Grimes and blamed the local Native Americans for the attack. Since the land they were mining on rightfully belonged to the Shoshone Bannock people, it's possible the attack was, in fact, retaliation for trespassing, but many of the facts remain unclear. The town of Centerville appeared at Grimes Creek overnight. By September of 1863, this camp boasted over 3,000 people, along with a hotel, general stores, houses, more than its fair share of saloons. In the following year, it even established a post office. With the completion of the Union Pacific Railroad, many Chinese immigrants joined the community and became involved in the mining efforts. Soon, mills were constructed and the area bustled with activity. But by the winter of 82, things had changed. The gold ran out. Miners packed up, houses were left abandoned, the once thriving community of thousands dwindled to 217 by 1880. Like many boom-to-bust towns, overnight it had practically become a ghost town. But that did not mean it was void of all life. Sure, most buildings now were empty. Some of the saloons sat silent, and dugout cabins began to cave in as nature reclaimed the area. But some miners still were claims, hoping to find the precious minerals left behind. A Chinese camp still kept up active work on abandoned claims, and four miles south, so did Dud Snow. Dud Snow, a mine boss, gained attention from the local community for his team's construction of several deep mine shafts, some of which went to the depth of 50 feet. His team dug, extracted, and smelted the ore, finding $15 worth of gold per ton, a little less than 500 in modern currency. Obviously not a huge payoff for the amount of work, but the work brought in more consistent profits than a solo prospector could accomplish. So each day, Dud Snow worked in the mine and slept in his cabin, watching as the nearby Centerville became less and less populated, and the forest surrounding it got more
more and more quiet. I have to wonder if it made him sad to walk through the empty ruins of the city each day, counting how many businesses closed the night before. Or perhaps he enjoyed the peace. Besides, he could always go to Idaho City if he needed supplies. But it turns out Dud Snow was less alone than he thought. The sound of a horse approaching Dud Snow's cabin got his attention. Who could that be? One of his few neighbors? Or maybe one of the miners who worked for him? Either way, a visit this late at night could only mean trouble. Dud Snow came around his cabin to see if the rider needed help. There he found a horseman upon a massive black steed. The stallion pawed at the ground and snorted clouds of hot air. The cowboy atop the horse had no head at least not on top of his shoulders. Instead, the gory mass hung below his neck. Quote, It was in the form of a man. The head was cut off all but a small piece of skin of the neck which it hung. It asked him for some blue mass, and when it found he had none, the head turned to a ball of fire, and the apparition sank out of sight near an old stump. Dud Snow, startled but unhurt, surely slept that night with the door of his cabin locked and his gun close at hand. He quickly reported the encounter to the Idaho semi-weekly world and announced plans to put a mine shaft where he had seen the phantom. Unlike the Fiddler's ghost, this report did not follow any murder that the town knew of. In fact, at first glance, it seemed as if Dud Snow invented the story to advertise his new mine to potential investors and or workers. But the legend does not end there. On October 3rd, an early snowstorm blew into Grimes Creek. A miner referred to by the white community as China Louie found himself caught in the storm. Many in Idaho City described Louie as a good person and as very intelligent. Louie, afraid he might freeze to death before he could make it to the Chinese encampment, stopped at Dud Snow's cabin. After knocking at the door, he told Dud he was lost, hungry, and tired. Dud got out a club and attacked Louie, chasing him out of the cabin and telling him to get out. Like many in the area, Dud had deep racial prejudice. Louie ventured back into the howling wind and piercing snow. Later that night, screams echoed through the woods at Grimes Creek. Dud Snow could hear the cries for help from inside his cabin. But Dud assumed the screams came from Louie. Despite the agony of the screams, Dud Snow rolled over and went back to bed. <laughs> what a what a terrible decision. I know, how uh. cruel. Little did Dud know that Louie was actually now miles away and safely out of the storm. The next morning, after the locals informed Dud that George Robinson, a local white homesteader, had gone missing sometime during the night, Dud became ashamed he'd not gone out to investigate the screams. Because of this guilt, Dud joined the 40 men stomping through the forest floor of autumn leaves and melting snow, scouring the woods looking for the missing man. But after a week of searching, they found nothing. No blood, no footprints, not a trace. George Robinson simply vanished. Strangely enough, George was not the only person missing in the area. Fifteen days before George disappeared, Chris Thomas and a German immigrant named Moosin left Boise headed east and were never seen again. The community suspected Moosin murdered Chris for his money. But as for George, there were no suspects. George simply left to go hunting and never returned. On the 16th of October, the search party around Grimes Creek finally found something. Four miles south of Dud Snow's cabin, they found a human skull, a few bones, along with two opium boxes, $2.50 worth of silver, and goggles. However, the remains were clearly too old to have belonged to the huntsman. The search party, unable to identify the body, took the skull back to town and left the rest of the bones behind. The following month, on December 13th, two individuals referred to by the papers as simply immigrants found an awful discovery. In one of the crumbling cabins on the outskirts of Grimes Creek, they found human remains. Underneath the floorboards of an abandoned shack contained two human heads and one amputated arm. Mostly bone, but one skull still displayed enough flesh to still have a long ponytail attached to it. Sheriff Dryden McClintock got a group of men together to go investigate. Sheriff Dryden holds a special spot in the prison's history as the sheriff who oversaw the transfer of the prisoner 
prisoners in the Idaho City Territorial Jailhouse to the Idaho Territorial Penitentiary here in Boise when it first opened in 1872. The sheriff and his men arrived at the spot and met with the workers who reported the crime. Together, they tried to discuss the discovery, but the language barrier immediately caused problems, and a frustrated Judge Hart suggested the men made up the claim and they should head back without even checking the cabin. Sheriff Dryden shot down the suggestion immediately, saying, quote, We've come ten miles, and I don't propose to return until I see those bones. The men entered the cabin. The door creaked open. Inside the dark hobble, a floor of rotting boards awaited them. A hole showed where the men had made their macabre find. But the remains were now gone. They searched the entire premise and found nothing. The workers were flustered and confused. The severed heads had been right there. But the absence of the human remains only left two possibilities. Either the two immigrants were lying, or someone snuck into the cabin and removed the evidence before the authorities arrived. Dud Snow continued to mine in the region for years. Louis eventually moved to Haley to raise hogs and likely worked in Montana for some time as an interpreter for other Chinese immigrants. Sheriff Dryden had a long and successful law enforcement career, but he never found the two human heads. The community members were never able to identify the human skull discovered at Grimes Creek. They never discovered what happened to George Robinson, Chris Thomas, or Moosine. By 1960, Center officially became abandoned. Today, no structures of the original city have survived. Dud Snow never claimed to have had a second encounter with the Headless Cowboy, but he also never went back on the original story. The legend of this phantom feels half-baked at best. I apologize for the frustrating lack of answers this story provides. The similarities between the different circumstances makes one wonder if something bigger was going on, but in the end, historical research often leads to more questions than answers. As for Grimes Creek, rumors of ghosts lasted longer than the population did. Most likely just rumors. But between the missing homesteaders, the discovery of decapitated heads, and the sighting of ghosts, one is left to wonder what really happened at Grimes Creek. Nice. That was just Idaho Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. Those things all probably have nothing to do with each other. But it's weird, right? Yeah. It's weird. That is a weird one. And it's so, it's half-baked. It's like not quite a ghost story. I was tempted not to share it because it's so informed because it is real. These are reports coming in the area, whether they're true or not. This is all coming from historical records. Yeah. The skull that still had enough flesh that the ponytail was... Yeah. on the end of it like that detail right there was uh, enough for me <laughs> it's weird because it's two heads and one arm yeah yeah and then they were just gone oh spooky what happened there yeah personally mm-hmm. what scares me more than a ghost is the idea that someone snuck back in and stole the remains oh creepy whether it's ghosts or a killer or even just the people disappearing with no trace all of it it's just kind of unnerving yeah yeah like the idea of like serial killer out in the mining towns like ooh, freaky right just wandering the forest that actually is a horrifying thought yeah i am taking us to a an area that i've spent a lot of time in both physically and mentally in my dissertation we are heading over to wood river valley Haley and sun valley this is from the River Times, September 21st, 1882. It's just titled A Ghost Story. During the recent snowstorm, two prospectors crossed the rugged mountain peaks from the east fork of Salmon River to the north fork of Wood River. were looking for a sheltered spot to camp when they noticed an opening in a cliff nearby, and with the intention of camping under the projecting ledge of rock, they went up to it. On arriving at the entrance, they were startled at beholding a great chamber in the solid rock, about 40 feet wide and without any visible end. After supper, they secured pitch pine torches and entered the cavern, which, in the bright light, was a grand sight. The walls were studded with quartz crystals which glistened like diamonds, and the roof which ascended from the mouth to a dome shape was 30 feet high and of similar formation to the sides. With some caution they proceeded and traveled 300 yards over an almost level floor. The roof and sides were near together at this point, but by the light of the torches they could see a still greater opening beyond with a roof about 90 feet high and a large lake below. They scarcely spoke above their breath, as when they spoke the sound of their voices were so often and echoed that it seemed like the shouts of a multitude of men. On reaching the edge of the lake, they examined the surroundings. The sides of the chamber were of lime
Mandarin formation and presented many colors, but principally blue and yellow and red, as if mineral stained, and so smooth were the walls that the cavern seemed to have been decorated by an artist. Massive stalactites hung from the walls, some nearly reaching down to the waters of the lake, while rising up from the floor of the chamber up through the water were very beautiful and equally massive stalagmites. The light of their torches was lost in the darkness beyond, but they were positive that around the bend of the lake they could see what looked like the skeleton of a human being. The lake was perfectly clear, but they could see no bottom, although they knew there must be one, as the stalagmites were fixed. They were about to walk around the lake when a sound as of thunder greeted their ears, and immediately their hair stood on end, as just ahead of them were now plainly visible two large eyes, which shone like locomotive headlights. Both men were transfixed with terror, and would doubtless be there yet, gazing in dumb fright at the apparition, had not the terrible noise been repeated, when, with one impulse, both men ran for outdoors so fast that they lost their hats. On reaching the mouth of the cavern, they lost no time in moving their camp two miles further. Although they have seen nothing more of the apparition, they are not over their fright yet, as the least noise startles them. The prospectors on Boulder Creek are talking of getting up a party to thoroughly explore the cave when the Times will be invited to send a reporter along. Creepy. Spooky. That's yeah. a good one. I love caves. Oh. <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> but, but they give you the creeps, right? Totally. There's always that feeling of like, am I going to turn the corner and find out I'm not alone right now? And yeah. that slide shimmy, pull myself through this little ravine and find a party of people or something that that is always a scary thing and then it's almost scarier to realize that you're the only person so deep into the earth the idea that something can see me but i can't see it oh that's the worst and imagine at this time you're you've got a torch yeah like and if, if that goes, goes out, out <laughs> good luck getting out of this cave so this one is from november 25th 1884 this is actually a thanksgiving themed spooky oh also. i love this so this one is titled last night's at about 9 o'clock last evening, it was reported on Main Street that a ghost had been seen on Bullion Street. A number of persons thereupon started out in search of the ghost, but failed to find any traces of it. This morning, the facts leaked out. Mr. Snifkin started out about 8 o'clock to buy Thanksgiving turkey, which he did. As he reached the alley between Main Street and First Avenue on Bullion, he was suddenly confronted by a tall white ghost that caused his hair to stand on end. He dropped his turkey and fled, yelling for help as he ran, while the apparition picked up the turkey and disappeared in the direction of Brother Clay's office exclaiming, By Jove, I'm in luck. I didn't know how to get a Thanksgiving dinner till we see that idiot come in. I don't get my sheet wash very often, but I'll do it every day if I can make a turkey by doing so. <laughs> duped amazing <laughs> i don't know if it's true because surely anyone that's a person in a sheet i don't know if you walked around a corner and someone caught you off guard at night yeah that's you might true. drop your turkey that's fair enough that's fun though i like that <laughs> that one's cute sky in 1905 the idaho statesman ran a scary ghost story contest they ran it on march 19th 1905 and the statesman was giving away five dollars for the best story <laughs> that's big money that's yeah, cool yeah. it's big money in 1913 five dollars was equal to to about $156 today. So in 1905, it's probably between like 150 175 Imagine if you're, you know, a minor, a housewife, a kid, like five bucks is gonna, that's a solid win. Yeah. The 13 best stories were published a week later after the call for stories, March 26, 1905. I'm only going to read three of them, but the rest of them are very fun. So please, if you are so inclined and you have uh, the ability to get access to newspapers, March 26, 1905 of the Idaho Daily Statesman. The ghost story contest aroused the liveliest interest among the readers of the statesmen. A number entered the contest and several of the stories submitted to the judges were so meritorious the closest analysis was necessary in order to select the winner. The prize was awarded to Ida R. McSparin of Star. The judges took into consideration every feature of composition, style, and originality. A grammatical slip in an excellent story and faulty construction of a minor character in what was otherwise regarded as the most clever narrative of all were some of the deciding factors as between those contributions and the prize winner. Several stories were disqualified because they exceeded the 300 word limit. Some of these were regarded as having sufficient merit to warrant publication, together with the contribution of others within the limit which are here presented. So this one is called Life Ruined by a Ghostly Revelation. He had come to my door hungry, and I had shown him the woodpile. After supper, he told me his story. There was no reason to doubt when my brother was found dead at his office desk with a revolver clutched in his rigid fingers that it was a case of suicide. Yet I did doubt it, for he had no known motive for such an act. One night, I had worked later than usual at my self-imposed task of straightening up his accounts, and had withdrawn to the fireplace 
for rest and warmth, by the merest chance leaving the ledger open at the very page where it had been left on the night of my brother's death, and where it still bore the stain of his blood. The heat of the fire must have made me drowsy, for suddenly I awakened with a start just as the clock was striking twelve to find I was no longer alone. In the chair at the desk sat a shadowy figure, which I instantly recognized as that of my dead brother, while suddenly stealing upon me from behind crept another misty figure with masked features and bearing in one upraised hand a sandbag. Without power to interfere, for a numb terror was upon me, I saw the murderous weapon descend and the form in the chair collapse into unconsciousness. Instantly, the assassin drew a revolver, closed the limp fingers of the unconscious one upon it, deliberately turned it upward and discharged it into the victim's head, holding the weapon in the stiffening fingers to be firmly seized in the icy grip of death. As the shadowy assassin turned toward me, his mask fell and my horror-stricken eyes beheld in the murderer my brother's nephew, my own son, and I fell fainting to the floor. Since that fatal night, I am a wanderer on the face of the earth. And that was signed J.A. Ruger from American Falls. Wow, shocking. Yeah. That's a good one, right? Mm. This one is thought he saw a monster dragon. This story may not be properly classed as a story of a ghost, but no ghost ever gave one a greater fright than was occasioned in this case. In the summer of 1885, I was prospecting in the country east of Haley. My camp was pitched near the top of a ridge and close by a trail leading across country toward Lost River. One evening, as I was sitting by my tent, as the shadows of night were gathering, my ear caught a sound like that of a stampeded horse thundering over a trail. In a moment, I saw a man running down toward me at a rate of which I did not think any human being capable. He did not notice me, but rushed past like a flash. His face was distorted by fright, and he kept looking back as he fairly galloped along. Behind him was something like a cloud of dust raised by his whirlwind speed, and it seemed to follow him along like a living thing. It was an uncanny sight, and it made me nervous during the entire night, but the incident remained a mystery for several days. I then had occasion to go down to a little place called Era. There, I learned from Judge Waldron the story of the race made by the terrified man. The latter was a resident of Haley, and was a character from about town, being famed as a man who regularly drank more whiskey than any other three men in the place. He had started from Haley on the evening of the run, and started running. He ran all the way to Era, by some 70 miles, making the distance by daylight, breaking all records for long-distance runs in the mountains. While walking in the outskirts of Haley toward evening, he looked over his shoulder and saw a dragon 40 feet long approaching him. With a bound, he started to run. The dragon did likewise. He took the trail up the gulch east of Haley, and the dragon followed his example, thundering along close at his heels. He ran faster, but the horde thing kept close and seemed to be ready to swallow him every moment, but by superhuman effort he managed to keep just out of reach. So the chase continued. Every time the man looked back, he hoped to find the monster had fallen behind, but he was always almost within reaching distance. After I heard the explanation of what I had seen as I sat by my tent, I began to feel the streak following the dying man had the form of a monster of some kind, and as the years have passed, the impression has grown more and more firmly fixed in my mind. I never camped in that locality again. I did not even go back for my camp outfit, and there's nothing on earth that would induce me to spend a night among those hills again. And that was by Jardine Henderson from Huntington, Oregon. <laughs> the last one I want to read is not very long. Um, it is called The Ghost of Hayville. This is the prize winner. Beside the usual crowd at the Hayville store was a stranger in a shaded corner, listening silently as the others talked. The wind shrieked dismally, dashing the rain against the window. Makes me think of the night old man Hawkins killed himself, said Pete Longman as he shook the rain from a slouched hat and squirted a quid of tobacco under the farthest leg of the stove. Yes, me too. Twas just such a night. I'd give anybody $25 just to sleep in that house one night, responded John Sloan, the innkeeper. You'll keep your 25 I'm thinking, put in Mike Sullivan. The stranger moved uneasily, then arose, saying, Gentlemen, I'm broke, and if you'll guarantee me the $25, I'll sleep in that house tonight. I don't believe in ghosts. Do it and the 25's yours, answered Sloan. You bet. We'll see you till you get it, came from the others. The stranger hastened to the haunted house, accompanied to the front gate by Pete. He stretched himself on the floor, expecting to go to sleep at once, but after several hours, he was still awake. Just us two, sounded a hoarse, ghostly voice at his side. Up he started, caring not for $25, nor 25000 for that matter. Breathlessly, he went down the walk, pausing just long enough to open the gate, which stubbornly refused to yield to his efforts. Wasn't that a devil of a race? From the same ghostly voice at his elbow. Off again, through the rain he plunged, landing this time in a deep mud hole. Tired, breathed the terrible voice. Yes, he was, but on he sped, never halting until he'd left the village far behind. The ghost was a parrot owned by the man who committed suicide. Hmm. It was a, a so parrot? Was a parrot, yeah. <laughs> like a bird. <laughs> That's fun. 
Speaking of scary, if we're talking about real-life scares, Anthony had a strange thing happen here at the penitentiary not too long ago. I did. Yeah, so earlier this year, I think think it was in March, you know, we don't open to the public until noon. And one morning, I just finished digitizing New Breed News, this, this newspaper written by the North American Indian League here at the site. And I was so excited about it. In Three House, a lot of those cells have men who were actually in nail the north american indian league and we're authors in this magazine so i was like you know what i'm gonna print a couple of these out and put them in these cells and while i'm in there i'm gonna zhuzh them up kind of clean them up get get rid of the top layer of dust and i didn't realize that there were mirrors in several of these cells so i kind of cleaned the mirrors off and i was just kind of going down the line and doing that and staging these new breed news magazines and and clock magazine articles as well from the 70s just to like give it that lived in space and i went to the east side of the building which currently we have closed off just kind of cleaning up and for years since I've worked here for now almost a decade this one window has always been open but there's a little bit of grating this mesh to keep birds and other critters out and so I was like you know I think we could probably shut this window and so I go into the back corner near the end of the tier and I I just slowly kind of shimmy this window down and close it and right after I do that right behind my head I hear, what are you doing? No. Dead serious. My hair stood up. I turned, of course, and I'm alone in the building. And I'm like, I'm looking around. I ran outside. I looked around to see if somebody like darted out. Cause I was like, it, it sounded like, like Sam, if you were putting on a voice or something. Mm-hmm. You didn't do it, did you? <laughs> no. Because, like, it, it was this very low, guttural voice right behind my head. And I, oh, man, it was, it was clear as day. What are you doing? Man, it really shook me up for a couple of days there. I was like, did anybody do this to me? Because, like, oh. this is really messed up. That was very freaky for somebody to, to do that while I'm just in there by myself cleaning up. Yeah. And that happens to be the same cell house that Marie Cuff, who's the head of Big River Paranormal, 11, 12 years ago, she was up in the top tier. And this is one of our most famous stories of paranormal activity. She was reaching into a cell and snapping a photo of some photos that were actually pasted on the back of one of the cell walls and something ran its fingers through her hair and said pretty so it's like the same I, w- I was gonna ask that yeah and i i'm wondering if if there is something there if this is not just entirely in my head and i you know it's yeah. just from all the dust and lead paint that i was stirring up but <laughs> you know like w- was this something in there that we both interacted with you know there was a, a fellow who his whole job was cell house janitor in three house his name was lee canfield i can't remember i think it was in the 60s but he was in for murder so he was like at a very long sentence he's the cell house janitor and he was he had a plank of wood going from the third tier to one of the top windows up at the top of the cell house and he was cleaning the window from the inside and he fell all the way four stories and and died on impact and so was this lee upset that i'm changing his cell house that i'm you know that's his job cleaning and organizing and changing opening and shutting the windows and all this stuff did i did i upset him by like altering his routine and what he wants and stuff i don't know if no one is on that side he probably has just been doing his janitorial thing and no one's bothered him now anthony comes tromping in here like he owns the place (laughs) he's had had it to himself he doesn't have to talk to anyone i mean honestly i'd be pretty i'd be pretty mad too right yeah oh (laughs) it was very spooky that is so spooky dude I feel like Anthony usually has a very cool head about these things and, and is very skeptic about a lot of claims. So the weight of something like that coming from Anthony is a little heavier than someone who's mm-hmm. on their first paranormal tour and are right. very excited. Yeah. yeah, their first evening here as a yeah. staff member or something. And you hear, you know, there are natural creaks and, and things that we hear all the time, especially up in the top tiers of Four House. There's this one little piece of metal that just blows in the wind. It sounds like somebody's like slapping in a bar or, or something and you know now we're so acquainted to most of those noises that this one was just whew, clear as day and 
Very spooky. Was, this was published in the Daily Statesman on September 5th, 1934. It says, They were walking through a gloomy bit of woods on a dark and stormy night. As the thunder boomed overhead and the wind shrieked, he took her hand. Makes me feel sort of nervous, he gulped, to think of the two skeletons hidden away near here. Skeletons? Where? She gasped. Inside of us, he moaned. I'm going to tell that joke. and This is a good one, right? <laughs> I'm expecting the biggest groans. I love it. Uh... <laughs> All right, Sam, you have a story to close us out today? According to legend, most spirits remain as just echoes of the past. Others, however, return for unfinished business. And there is no unfinished business quite like revenge. Aaron Morris's murderers were never convicted. They never served time at the Idaho Penitentiary for that specific crime. But that's not to say they went unpunished. For our last story tonight, let's discuss the dark tale of Aaron Morris's revenge. Aaron, like so many other immigrants, came to the West looking for a fresh start. Born in Poland somewhere between 1851 and 1853, Aaron at the age of 21 moved to Utah. He likely settled in the area to help his cousin, Isidore Morris. Isidore, a successful businessman, eventually asked his cousin to move north in order to take over his operations in Hadley, Idaho. There, Aaron took charge of the family general store as well as managing a few mills in the area. Jewish settlement in Boise took place as early as 1865, leading to the construction of the oldest synagogue west of the Mississippi River built in 1895. Later in 1919, Moses Alexander became the 11th governor of Idaho and the second elected Jewish governor in the United States. Aaron, however, represented a new demographic of Jewish immigrants moving to Sun Valley to ranch, mine, and grow potatoes during the 1880s. Aaron, who arrived in 1878, quickly became well-liked and friends with many in the area. Described by the Idaho Weekly Keystone as, quote, the well-known and sterling young member of the firm of I. Morris. He quickly earned a place in the community and the respect of his neighbors. The work he did kept him busy. But August 16th must have been an especially busy Saturday for Aaron in 1884. Not only did he still need to collect money all throughout Ketchum, he also wanted to make it back to Haley to see Isidore, who visited just for the night, and planned to return to Salt Lake by train in the morning. Aaron sat down with Richard West at 5.30 p.m. for a quick bite to eat before riding off into the forest. For the next few hours, he paid visits to each one of the miners and farmers who'd purchased from their general store using credit. By 11.30, Aaron once again visited Richard before leaving Ketchum. Richard tried to discourage him from leaving. It was at least an hour and a half ride to Haley. Besides, it was late, dark, and Aaron carried no pistol. But he would not hear it. He needed a visit with his cousin before he left town. Aaron paid the man for dinner. They shook hands, and Aaron stepped out into the night. At 11.45, stable boy William Scott helped Aaron saddle his horse. While Aaron put on his overalls and gloves, a man hovered near the barn. But William did not pay much attention to the stranger, so much so that later he could not recall any details of the man. William defended himself by saying, It was a very dark night. By the time Aaron rode off, the stranger disappeared back into the shadows, and William did not think twice about it. The summer night was dark and cool. Aaron rode his horse through the shadowy woods. Eventually, he made it to the old country bridge above Trail Creek. Perhaps he whistled to pass the time. Perhaps not. If he did, the only sound to accompany him would have been the midnight wind. Somewhere, out on the lonely dirt road between Ketchum and Haley, a shot rang out. David Levy made his way down the road on the sunny summer morning of August 17th. There he spied a drunk lying face down in the middle of the road. Chuckling to himself, he decided to wake the drunk, for that was no place for a man to sleep. But the closer he got, the more wrong the picture looked. In court, he testified that, quote, I thought it was a dummy. The face I had looked disfigured. I kept close to the fence, and as I came nearer the body, noticed it was wet about his head, and on getting closer, saw it was blood. After I saw it was blood, noticed his face was bloated, and that he was dead. David ran to get help, and after enlisting some homesteaders who lived close by, they began to investigate the body. David explained, quote, We went to the body and examined it. 
One of the men said, the dead man had been shot through the mouth. I noticed a hole in the left side of his head and brain oozing out. Picked up the hat lying near and showed a hole through the hat, remarking the ball went through there. I was told to lay the hat down and not touch anything till the jury came. But by then the stomping feet of the curious and well-intentioned witnesses contaminated the crime scene. The body, difficult to recognize due to the damage around the face, they soon identified as Aaron Morris. Marshal Joseph Pinkham arrived first, along with four other men. Soon Sheriff Fury and three deputies also arrived at the scene to help. Joseph Pinkham, a tough lawman, holds quite the legacy here in Idaho. After fighting for years in the Idaho Indigenous Wars, President Grant appointed him to become the United States Marshal to oversee the entire Idaho Territory. While serving in this position, he also acted as the warden for the Idaho Territorial Penitentiary, overseeing the transfer from Idaho City to Boise. You can hear all about Marshal Pinkham from Anthony and Sky in Season 7 of the podcast. Sheriff Fury, you might remember from just the other week as we rode with him to the gunfight at Grave Creek in that week's Stool Pigeon Saturday. After examining the crime scene, there were a few themes the two groups of lawmen agreed on right off the bat. Aaron Morse must have been killed just after midnight. They discovered the body one mile past the junction leading to Ketchum, near the oat fields of Holman's Ranch. Aaron's assassin shot him through the face. Due to the blood on the horse and saddle, which ranchers discovered at Elkhorn Lane, Aaron must have ridden the stallion for a short distance before sliding off the saddle. But after that, the nine men began to disagree about the facts. Officer Joe Montgomery and Ben James believed the entrance wound through the face proved that a horseman fired the fatal shot. Sheriff Fury, on the other hand, believed the bolt's trajectory went up, through the mouth, and out of the skull, indicating that the perpetrator who fired the bolt must have been on foot. Pinkham supported the sheriff's conclusion. From there, Officer Montgomery and James followed fresh horse tracks away from the scene of the crime to Haley. They were distinct tracks since the horse rode that night only wore three horseshoes. The sheriff and Pinkham, on the other hand, followed two pairs of footprints away from the crime scene. The trail led them through an oat field, a stream, then eventually all the way back to Ketchum. After the completion of the coroner's investigation, Isidore collected his kin's body and took him back to Salt Lake to be buried in the Jewish section of the cemetery. A massive group of friends, family, and community members attended the funeral. Outraged over the crime, locals quickly raised a large bounty to catch his layer. The city of Ketchum offered one thousand dollars in reward. Isidore raised another one thousand dollars from his own personal funds, which Governor Byrne of Idaho matched dollar for dollar. By August 22nd, the reward for catching and convicting the killer of Aaron Morris reached an astounding five thousand dollars. Wow. Do we have a guess of how much that is in modern currency? Five thousand dollars? That's like a trillion dollars. <laughs> I would say maybe like seventy-five thousand. Just over one hundred fifty $54,000. One of the biggest rewards I've ever seen with a wow. murder in Idaho. Serious? That's insane. Shows you how loved Aaron Morris was. Yeah. The community wanted justice. Montgomery and James quickly found that the three-shoed horse belonged to the Kid Williams, who they placed under arrest. Meanwhile, Fury and his deputies arrested George Pike, Thomas Kelly, and the notorious, dangerous Samuel Hatt. Oh... Hatton has come up a lot this season, so I'm not going to go into details on the man the Idaho statesman called, quote, one of the worst men ever confined in the Idaho penitentiary. But go back and listen to our incredible Suzanne in season six to hear his entire grisly story. Quickly, however, the Kid Williams proved an airtight alibi, and the authorities released him. The sheriff also released George Pike. However, things did not look good for Kelly and Hatton. One pair of the footprints leaving the crime scene left the distinct square-toed marks in the mud. The other left round-toe marks. Kelly's boots were square-toed and Hatton's round. When authorities confiscated Hatton's boots and socks, they discovered them both to be wet. 
with a single oat under its sole. Kelly's boots, considerably more dry, were stained with a faint splattering of blood. Considerably more incriminating was the boot size, make, and even the position and number of nails were an exact match to the footprints found in the mud. This fact, Sheriff Fury discovered and Pinkham confirmed. However, neither one made casts of the prints, something that clearly hurt them during the trial. Neither Kelly or Hatton could provide any alibi. Both men were seen at their regular haunts just before midnight. Both men disappeared for a few hours. Then they were seen returning home to the cabin they rented at 2 a.m. They could give no explanation of where they'd been for those missing hours. In court, Kelly, already nervous and visibly shaken, began to cry and claimed he had no money for an attorney. On the other hand, Samuel Hatton, with his normal, confident swagger, chose to represent himself. The witnesses Hatton called to the stand, however, did not seem to work in his favor. The bartender Tom Dick Harry admitted the men did attend a saloon, but not until after 1 a.m. Apparently, Hatton attempted to have some working girls vouch for his whereabouts, but their contradicting testimonies once again failed to prove the men's whereabouts. However, the boot evidence began to fail in court. With no casts and with the officers who retrieved the boots covered in oats themselves, the single oat in Hatton's boot could not provide conclusively that he'd been in the field, nor could the blood on Kelly's shoes. Neither man's gun fit the bullet used to kill Aaron. One of the mysteries of Aaron's death was the motivation behind it. At first glance, the obvious conclusion was robbery. Aaron Morris was missing a few papers, a few dollars in silver, but his body still had $900 worth of cash, gold, what? and diamonds on him when they found him. Either the highwayman who killed him failed to find the funds, or the murderer's motivation was not money. <sighs> A Salt Lake Tribune reporter who attended Aaron's funeral claimed he once overheard an Idaho man say, quote, We will kill men up here just to see them kicking. Wow. Samuel Hatton's mother and sister visited him, but made it clear to anyone who listened to them that they believed Hatton to be guilty of the crime. <laughs> On December 16th, 1884, to the shock and outrage of the community, the charges were dismissed. Then Thomas Kelly and Samuel Hatton were both released from jail. Meanwhile, Aaron's family still grieved. Earlier that year, Isidore published a card thanking everyone who stood by the family during their turmoil. In the newspaper, Paper, Isidore stated, All that human kindness could do to assist us in bearing the heavy burden of this great grief has been done, and we will gratefully ever remember these efforts of loving sympathy. Days turned to weeks, and months turned to years and the citizens of Alturas County tried to move on. But as strange occurrences began to happen on the country road at midnight, townsfolks began to whisper. Animals refused to cross the road near Holman's Ranch. Strange sounds were heard at night, and shadowy wraiths were seen riding in the trees. The community began to avoid the dark stretch of road during the witching hour. Instead, they locked their doors and built up their fires bright and warm. On November 30th, 1887, after an especially long day of work, Lung Choi, Charlie Bell, and another miner found themselves in the woods past sundown. The men began to ride back through the woods. The full moon provided some light, but not enough to keep the shadows from dancing between the trees. As the wagon drew up to the oat field, now buried under snow, the horse saw something. It kicked back in a desperate panic and flipped the wagon. The men screamed and were thrown into the air. Charlie Bell and the other miner tried to calm the animal, but when they went to Lung Choi, they discovered he was dead. But just like the rest of Ketchum, these heartbroken men knew exactly who to blame for their friend's death. Aaron Morris. The Caldwell Times published, quote, The ghost of the murdered man still roams in the vicinity and is constantly on watch to revenge his untimely taken off, and will remain there until the murderers are captured and punished. Those who believed that Aaron's ghost still remained in the woods also believed he was not a harmless haunt. Aaron rode again, but this time he rode for revenge. The territory never convicted anyone for killing Aaron Morris, but in 1888, Fishers discovered a gun in Trail Creek. 
less than 300 feet from where Aaron's body had been discovered. The fishers found the weapon under an old country bridge that four years prior Aaron rode across on the night of his murder. The gun provided a clue but no real answers, and the crime was left unsolved. His family never had any kind of closure. As late as 1914, the statesman still published articles about the $5,000 reward that would never be claimed. However, that's not to say the violent story ended there. As for Thomas Kelly and Samuel Hatton, both men met ghastly conclusions. In 1885, the Ketchum Keystone published reports that cowboys shot and killed Thomas Kelly while he attempted to steal horses in Oregon. Samuel Hatton died right here in the penitentiary in 1892 while serving time for an entirely different crime. A guard named French put a knife through his side during a fight between the two of them and Tex. I go into great detail over Hatton's bloody fate in episode 85 about our very own cowboy assassin Oscar Selim Herbert, better known as Tex. Now, neither of these men were ever convicted for Aaron Morris's murder. Both were known outlaws who lived rough lives. The mortality rate for highwaymen and road agents in the West was always high. So therefore, I would dismiss any claims that Aaron Morris's phantom caused these men's deaths. I would also discourage the rumor that Aaron Morris attended their murders, watching from the trees of Oregon as the cowboy shot Thomas Kelly to death. Or that Aaron stood outside the 1890 cell house on his horse on the cold morning of December 16th and watched Samuel Hatton die eight years to the day that the charges were dropped against him. Because all of that is just hearsay. Campfire stories we tell each other on dark nights to try and scare each other and to make sense and patterns of such awful violence. If Thomas Kelly and Samuel Hatton truly did kill Aaron Morris, I do hope that Aaron Morris has now been able to find peace. His body rests in Salt Lake City. His tombstone is inscribed in Hebrew, and below that it reads, A man of honor, true and tried, by the assassin's coward's hand. That's a great story, Sam. I love how connected it is. Oh, wow. It's heartbreaking. It is. It's so heartbreaking. And forgive me, but all of these years of anthropology, it's hard not to think of why we tell ghost stories. Ghost stories are a form of ancestor reverence. It's a way of Mm -hmm. remembering. And I think a lot of times it's, it's a way to help us make sense of tragedy and things that don't feel right and don't feel fair. It breaks my heart to think about Aaron Morris's family and, and everything they lost on that night in 1884. Wow. Well, I mean, highlighting the story now, you know, I wonder if maybe somebody out there knows something. Yeah. I wonder if they would still fulfill that (laughs) (laughs) $5,000. That's incredible, though. That is is an incredible story, and it is heartbreaking. Man, well, great work, Sam. Great work, Sky. These are some good spooky stories today. Sky, wonderful stories. Anthony, thank you for sharing your experience. Very, very spooky, spooky things to conclude with. Well, friends, it looks like our fire has burned down to coals. The witching hour is almost upon us. It's late, and you all should probably get home and go to bed. Thank you for joining us. I hope you've had fun listening to these stories. Hopefully, some of them gave you some chills and perhaps even learned a little bit of history along the way. Now you can turn on the lights and come back to the modern age. You can leave the ghosts of the Idaho Territory behind. Please travel safe, and when you get home, maybe you can make sure to lock the door, crawl into bed, Turn off the lights and do your best to fall asleep. If you hear a violin playing in the woods outside or see a lone rider standing on the ridge across from your window watching you, remind yourself that these were only some old Idaho ghost stories and nothing more. Good night. Do your own time. Do your own number. And happy Halloween, everyone. Special thanks to Charlie Burry on the fiddle and our very own Anthony Perry on the banjo. And a big thank you to voice actors Rob Goodwin, Brian Zimmerman, Draven Brand, Peter Fidel, Jack Orchid, Logan Adams. If you enjoyed Behind Grey Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. 
If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.